<laughs> Thank you, Jake. Well, good morning. How are you today? You see, I was doing pretty well until a couple of minutes ago. Yeah, got up this morning, had a cup of coffee, maybe had a chance to go out to breakfast, came in, met some nice people, hopefully got greeted on the way in, got to sing, and then we hear this passage. If I had sound effects, there'd be like a record scratch right there. It just seems very disruptive. What sorrow, what sorrow. So if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Matt Doan speak for about 30 minutes on blessings. So I don't know what you did when you heard this message or this passage this morning, but I don't know what I did. He got 30 minutes on blessings. I get 30 minutes on sorrows. I'm thinking, I need a new agent. <laughs> no, this, this will be good. Um, <clears throat> again, I don't know exactly how you came here. I don't know how this passage affects you. But I'll tell you this, this is kind of, maybe let you into my thinking, this is my first impression. This is what comes to my mind when I read this passage. The guy on the left, you know, the guy at the baseball games or, you know, at the beach or whatever, and he's yelling at you through a megaphone, you know, about that God's angry with you and, and you better get your life together. And, and, and I don't know, I'm sure God can use that. God can use anything. But it, uh, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. Um, or maybe it's the image on the left, you know, that's kind of from the Middle Ages there, that the idea that really spiritual people, really pious people, they're not happy people. I mean, if you are really sort of spiritually minded, you're borderline miserable. I mean, that's how we know that you're spiritual. It's because you're miserable. I'm going to suggest to you that, that neither of those things, neither of those images is what Jesus means, even if that's your first impression. I don't know what your first impression was of this passage, but if you can hang in with me a little bit, I think we can get beyond those initial impressions and maybe get at the heart of what Jesus is trying to convey. So <clears throat> before we start, let me just mention a couple of other things, and that is this. Of course, you show up here, you don't expect somebody to just be telling you all this bad news, okay? It doesn't feel good. But here's a couple of thoughts that I think are important as an aside. Whether you are new to the faith or just considering Christianity and its legitimacy or whether you've been around a long time. And the first one is this, is that we live in a very, very divided world for sure. You know, very polarized is the word we talk about. People can agree on very few things. But one thing that we seem to all agree on is the world is messed up. We may disagree hotly on why it's messed up and what the solution is, but we all agree this is not the way it's supposed to work. So if there is a God, if he is real, we would certainly expect him to address that. I mean, we wouldn't expect sunshine and rainbows all the time. One of the things that if there is a God that God should do is tell us what's wrong with the world and how to fix it. The other thing is this, is that if God is real, occasionally he ought to rub us the wrong way. Because the reason that's true is, think about any significant relationship in your, in your life. If you know someone and you know, know them beyond the superficial level, you will find that occasionally you disagree with them. They irritate you. Maybe the person sitting next to you. I don't know. Somebody in your household who really knows you and you know them because they're different from you, because they are a real person. If you find, when you think of God or you read the Bible, 
that God is constantly agreeing with you, then maybe you're not getting the whole picture. Maybe you've kind of conformed God into your own image. So occasionally if God rubs you the wrong way, that's not a bad thing. I think that speaks to the authenticity that God is real and he's a real being. Well, here's what I propose we do today. Here's my plan. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what Jesus is trying to say. And the first thing I think is helpful is to address a little bit about what is he not saying. Sometimes that can be helpful, just eliminate some things. And then go a little bit deeper about what he is saying. In order to do that, I think we need to look at the context when he speaks, the worldview that he's speaking from, and then to help with that, I'll do a little illustration. And then we'll talk about the implications and the applications of that. And I'll still get you up out on time for brunch. You don't have to change your reservation. Okay. So what is he saying? Well, let's start with what I think he is not saying. I don't think he is saying that above all else, avoid being rich, avoid being well-fed or happy or popular. By the way, if you manage the first three, I think you're good on the fourth because if, if you are poor and miserable and unhappy and starving, I don't think you have to worry about being popular. So that's the good news. But I don't think that's what he's trying to say here. Um, and the reason for that is you have to look broader than this passage to all the things Jesus said and did. And there's one reference up there, Luke 7:34, another one in Matthew. We're not going to turn to them, but you can look them up now or, or on your own. One of the things Jesus was criticized for is because he had too much fun. I mean, people came up to him and said, look, Jesus, we know spiritual people, Pharisees, even John the Baptist's disciples, and they fast and, and they mourn and they do other things. You and your disciples, you're constantly eating and drinking and having fun. What's wrong with you guys? One of the first miracles that Jesus did was at a wedding. He turned water into wine, possibly for no other reason than to make sure the host wasn't embarrassed and the guests didn't run out of wine. Jesus is not down on enjoyment and pleasure, so I don't think that was his primary message here. The other thing that I don't think he's trying to say is this, is that suffering is the way we get to heaven. But by being poor and miserable and unpopular is the path to get to heaven. Now, this could be a longer conversation. I'm going to shorten it just a little bit. I think if you look at the, the broad spectrum of what Jesus had to say, look at all his teaching, you can certainly come to that conclusion. But I'm going to sort of phone a friend here and get a little help from um, the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he says it most succinctly. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, which means not by your own efforts, so that no one can boast. The whole Old Testament leading up to this time is the story of the Jews attempting to live by the rules that God has given them and constantly failing. Jesus arrived on the scene to say the good news is, is that you can never earn your way to heaven. And that's the whole reason for Jesus' death on the cross was to pay the penalty for our sins so that we might be with him in heaven for eternity. Not that we earn it, but we accept it as a gift. Now, to say that we get to heaven freely as a gift without our own effort is not the same thing as saying that what we do doesn't matter. What we do does matter. 
it matters very much. And that's part of what Jesus is trying to point out here. If you want to dig a little bit deeper on that, there's another passage up there where Paul talks about this in Corinthians. There's also Romans chapter 6. I encourage you, extra credit, go dig into it on your own or in your small group or with a mentor that you want to kind of wrestle with us a little bit deeper. But we'll leave it there for now. So I don't think Jesus is trying to just be down on fun and make sure nobody's having a good time. I don't think he's trying to convey that you have to be poor and miserable to get to heaven. So what is he saying if he's not saying those things? Well, I think it's always helpful to think about what you imagine his intent to be. Now, sometimes we figure out and we bring our intent or Jesus' goal or Jesus' tone of voice, we kind of bring it to the text. Sometimes we kind of have to pull it out of it. And it's because it's written word, it's not always obvious unless the commentator, the, the writer, adds there, it there for us. You know, that's one of the problems with email and texting. You know, it's just written. There's no, there's no tone of voice. There's no facial expressions with it. The number of times I've sent something to my wife and she responds with, why are you mad at me? I look at my phone. I'm not mad at you. There's no nasty emojis there. How did you read into there a tone of anger? But we do that because we know the person and, and that's how we interpret what they're saying. So we have to ask our question, what was Jesus' goal and intent here? Was he a little bit like that guy maybe with the megaphone? Was he trying to shame the people? Was he trying to make them feel rejection and send them away? Or was he more trying to shock them and disturb them convict them so he might draw them closer? Was he trying to, to get them to experience shame and rejection or conviction and connection? Was he trying to send them away or draw them near? I think he's trying to do the second. Let's see if you buy that with me as we work through this. What he's saying, we understand it best if we understand the context in which he's speaking and we understand the worldview. Earlier, I... I spokes out of en enviously of Matt's message last week, but it does a great job of setting up this passage because this is the second half of that passage. So if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go online and take a look at that because it really kind of sets this passage up well. I think what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to shock his hearers to get their attention so that they don't continue in a way that they shouldn't. So let's talk about worldviews. The people that Jesus was speaking to back then, them, in that time, they had diverse opinions just like we do. But if I become a little uh, unfair to them and summarize it, it would be a little bit like this, specifically the Jews. There were also Greeks there. Again, um, Matt talked a little bit about that, people that weren't Jews, and they had a worldview that was different from ours and the Jews in that it was all about Greek mythology. But in a similar way, they viewed the world that the happy people, the rich people, are the ones that are blessed by the gods. For the Jewish people, they would have looked at the world this way, is that when we do good, God blesses us. You know, they were taught that in Sunday school or Sabbath school their whole life, that if we do good, God blesses us. Therefore, it's real easy to tell who the good people are. They're the people that have the money. They're the people that are happy. They're the people that are popular because they are popular and happy and well-fed because... They did good things, and God is blessing them. So when they heard Jesus' words, they were stunned. They were shocked. They were like, no, Jesus, you're wrong. What's wrong with you? A little bit like it for us, but for different reasons. Now, again, 
we don't all have the same worldview in this opinion, and I'm not, sorry, same opinion or worldview in this room, and I'm not saying that what I have up on the screen represents everybody's worldview by any means. We have plurality, we have diversity for sure. But in media, maybe social media, maybe even in some of our institutions, um, we have this sense that a materialist worldview that says that the only thing that is real, the only thing that exists, is this life on Earth. There's nothing more beyond these decades on this Earth. Therefore, make the most of this life. Be as happy as you can. Get all the money and enjoyment and popularity you possibly can, because this is all there is to it. And if Jesus, if you're in that worldview and Jesus speaks these words to you, once again, for very different reasons, you go, Jesus, you're nuts. That doesn't make any sense at all. As a side note, I don't know about you, but whenever I kind of divide the world into us, we, and them, and of course, them is bad, us is good, we're right, we're smart, they're dumb, they're evil, then I come to the question, okay, which side is God on? Well, of course, he's with us. What I find when I read the scriptures and I read the New Testament, when I look at Jesus interacting and people bringing to him these issues, Jesus, some people say this, some people say this, what do you say, which one's right? Almost invariably, he comes back with a message, neither of you. There's a third option. And so that is Jesus' worldview. And this is the message he came to proclaim. And this was his worldview when he spoke these words to them. And that is this. This life is not all there is. This life gets its meaning from the next. He talked about the fact that he has a kingdom that's not of this world. And more specifically, he talked about the idea that we can look forward to treasures in the next life beyond this. And that's exactly what we should do. Now, to help make this a little more sense, maybe, um, I'm going to give you an illustration. Now, I'm borrowing from an illustration that a, a man named Francis Chan used decades ago, so you may be familiar with it from that purpose. If not, it doesn't matter. Here it is. A rope. And so this is a very special rope, because as you can see, it goes on forever. It starts here, and there's no end to this rope. It's actually not true. There is an end to this rope. You have to imagine it has no end. As it turns out, it's very hard to buy a rope with only one end, even on Amazon. You can get one with no end, like a circle, but that's a different worldview. We're not doing that today. Um, so this is a rope that starts here, and it goes on forever. This represents a timeline, but it's a sp very specific timeline. This is your life. This is the beginning of the timeline. This is where you're born, and it goes on forever in Jesus' worldview. This red section here, this is your life on earth. These are the decades that each of us have on earth. And some of us are at different points there. Some of us are way over here, and we may or may not recognize that. Some of us are feeling it. Some of us don't. Jesus' worldview said that it's not just this life on earth. It's all about this. If this is all there is to life, then what Jesus had to say made no sense. But what Jesus had to say is this. He wasn't down on enjoyment and being well-fed and being rich in this life. What he's saying is, don't sacrifice 
this for this. Let's look at the text one more time, just as a refresher. And it reads this way. What sorrow awaits you who are rich? For you have your only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are, I'm going to have to read it off the screen. I can't do it. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now? For a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now? For your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds for their ancestors also praised false prophets? He's not down on being popular or being rich, but what he's saying is, don't try and get it all here now, sacrificing here. If you're going to sacrifice, sacrifice here for the sake of this. It's not saying that this life doesn't matter. It matters very much, but it very much matters in life in light of this life. Live your life in light of all of this, not just focused on this. Another man that thought about this quite a bit, and there's some great quotes on this topic, but C.S. Lewis thought very much about this concept and the idea that Jesus is trying to convey here. And one of the things he said is this. If we find ourselves with nothing, sorry, with a desire that nothing in this life can fulfill, then chances are it can only be satisfied in the next, meaning we were made for something more than this life. The concept there, the idea is trying to convey is that one of the things that tells us that God is real and what he's saying is true and that there's life beyond this life is because despite all of our efforts to find satisfaction in this life, we still find it lacking because we were made for something more. The other thing he said, which fits with what Jesus is trying to say here, is that if we aim at heaven, again, it's this concept here again, if we aim at this white part, if we focus on it and all that awaits us there, and, and by the way, if I wasn't clear on this before, or if you're confused, Jesus isn't speaking from sort of this cliche idea that after we die and go to heaven, you know, we, we have robes and harps and we sit on clouds. It's a worldview that says this is life that's truly life. God said he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And that new heaven and new earth far surpassed anything that we can find in this life. It is this life on steroids without all of the pain and suffering and dysfunction and enmity that we find. That's the life he has for us. And C.S. Lewis said, if you just aim at this life, you don't get either. But if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in as well. It makes your life here better as well. To take a fuller view of the passage, I want to expand it a little bit. Because, as I said, last week's verses, starting with verse 20, um, 24, cover the, the passage more, more thoroughly. In that we don't know many things about what Jesus had to say, but we do know this. He didn't have PowerPoint, okay? He didn't give handouts. He was communicating in a culture and an interaction where it was all verbal, it was all oral. So he used techniques to make it more memorable. So he used things like repetition. Like, what sorrow have you who are rich now? What sorrow have you who are happy now? He also used comparison and contrast. And he contrasted these verses with the ones that come before. So 
In verse 20, he said, blessed are the poor. In verse 24, he says, what sorrow have you who are rich? And the issue isn't here the definition of rich and poor and what your taxable income is to see where you qualify. The issue here is, how do you view the resources that God has given you? Do they belong to you? Do you own them? Do you own your house and your bank account and your car and your 401k? Or were they entrusted to you for stewardship in this life for the benefit of the next? The question I think of when I read the passage is this. What have I been given so that I might give it away? Likewise, he says in verse 21, blessed are the hungry. And in verse 25, he says, what sorrow have you who are fat and well-fed and satisfied? And so I have to think about this issue of what are the what am I satisfied with here instead of longing for there? In verse 21, he says, blessed are those who weep. Blessed are those who are unhappy. In verse 25, he says, what sorrow have you who laugh now? And I have to think to myself, have I closed my eyes to the pain of others? Again, Jesus isn't down on having a good time. He isn't down about being happy. He talked extensively about joy. But am I making my life all about making me happy? instead about being concerned for others. And finally, verse 22, he talks about blessed are those who are hated. And verse 21, what sorrow have you who are praised, who are popular. And I don't know about you, but I struggle very much with this being worried about what people think of me. Social media is all about that, right? How to create this curated life where people will, will envy your life and you impress those. And I have to confess, I'm not a big social media person, but when I stand up in a context like this, it's very easy for me to be worried about, what are people going to think about me? And that can be so destructive, we know. And so the question, the prayer I have is, Lord, help me understand that you are the primary audience for my life. I go on to pray, then my wife and children, because there should be people in your life with whom you are vulnerable and self-revealing, so they can encourage you in your struggles and they can see that, again, you do have struggles and your life is real. But it's not to play your life to the audience of the whole world to impress people. Let me wrap up with a couple thoughts here. <clears throat> um, I think the spirit of what Jesus is trying to convey here, and I asked this question earlier, do you think Jesus is trying to shame people and cause them to experience rejection and go away discouraged and despairing? Or do you think he's trying to convict them so that he can draw them in? And the Apostle Paul wrote these words to the church in Corinth to kind of explain, I think, or it speaks to the same spirit that Jesus had in this passage. Paul had written a letter and where he was very direct with them and told them they were doing things wrong. And certainly there was a risk that they would be defensive and it would ruin the relationship with them. But instead, they responded well and they changed their behavior and they got their act together. And so when he wrote the second letter, he included this passage where he wrote, I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you. Though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful for you for a little while. Now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurts you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. 
For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. This is very much to me the spirit of what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to shock his hearers. He's trying to get them to be taken aback and say, wait a minute, what are you saying, Jesus? That can't be right. But not so that they're discouraged and walk away, but so that they come to him and lean in to what he's telling them. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now and lead us in worship. And as they do that, uh, just to share one last thought with you, and that is this. Kind of as, a, as part of the leadership here, it may sound strange, but one of the things that I think about, one of the things that worries me is we'll have a service like this or a message like this, and it'll be like a lot of good advice. You know, that, that it'll seem like we're here to give out good advice. It's sort of a big self-help session with really good music. And, you know, that's okay. There are worse things you can do than offer good advice. But I'm not sure that most of us need more good advice. Most of us, there are times when we don't know what to do. But most of the time, we do know what to do. We just can't do it. And if that's your situation, then you're in the right place. Because this is not just about good advice. This is about recognizing, God, I hear what you're saying. It may not make any sense to me. It may upset me. But I can't do that. I can't live that way. That's exactly the right place to be. Because Jesus invites us to come. He doesn't encourage us to go away. We're here. It's strange, but one of the few requirements of Christianity when you show up is you have to say, I can't do it. Because that's exactly the way it's supposed to work. That we come to God saying, I can't do it. I need you to help me. So whatever mindset you're in, if you came here with some struggles or difficulties, or you just owe them all to the last 30 minutes of me speaking to you, whatever your situation is, um, I pray that you wouldn't take those difficulties out with you. But even now as we start to worship, you would bring those to God.